Welcome to Stop Christian Nationalism. Stop Christian Nationalism is a podcast that, well, okay, it is what the name implies. You understand that, don't you? It's about the effort to stop Christian nationalism. We can get focused on that stopping Christian nationalism and lose sight of the bigger picture. It becomes all about the Christian nationalism, all about what they're doing. And so this is going to be a different kind of episode this week. Because sometimes, while we're working to stop Christian nationalism, it becomes easy to only talk about the problems with Christian nationalism. Christian nationalists are aggressively nasty people, and their plans for destroying America are beguilingly flamboyant. They demand attention with their actions. They're so dramatic. It's seductive to make it all about them. And that is part of what Christian nationalists want. They want every debate to be about what they believe. They want everything to be about what's important to them. They want every choice to be about simply whether you are going to do what they want or whether you are going to disobey. And we should disobey. But there is more to the issue than that. There is more to the movement to stop Christian nationalism than what Christian nationalists believe. We want to stop Christian nationalism, not only because Christian nationalism is awful, but because the alternatives to Christian nationalism are wonderful. Once you reject Christian nationalism, a huge range of possibilities for your life open up. And that's what I want to talk about this week. I want to take a break from warning you about the dangers of Christian nationalism so that I can tell you about the delights of a world free of Christian nationalism. And that's not because the alarming tactics of Christian nationalists are not continuing. They are. This week in Tennessee, the governor of Tennessee announced that... um, The state of Tennessee is under the dominion of the Christian God. That's not what the Constitution of the United States says. Um, Down in Louisiana, a public school tricked a whole bunch of public school students to go to a religious conversion class to try to convince them to become right-wing Christians. This is in a public school. This kind of stuff is going on all the time. And uh, in many of the other episodes, I have shown you some of the voices, really just a small sample of the voices and what they're saying out there, the people who are promoting Christian nationalist ideas. I want to step away from that to get to the delights of a life without Christian nationalism. And when I say the word delight, what my mind leaps to immediately are things that feel really good in an immediate sense. You know, Christian nationalism tells us that we should not trust feeling good. Feeling good is is, um, somehow evil and immoral. 
But, um, you know, uh, imposing an awful feeling on other people, to me, that seems like a much worse thing. If we don't have the right to feel good in our lives, this one life that we appear to be living, what else could it all be for? So, there is a lot of opportunity for delight of many different kinds in a life that is free from the harsh control of Christian nationalism. Sex, for example. Yes, sex. That can feel pretty good for most people. Christian nationalists, they want to control people's sex lives. They want to control people's sex lives so that they can control people in all ways. They want to tell us who to have sex with. They want to tell us when we are allowed to have sex. They want to tell us how to have sex, what kinds of sexual activity we're allowed to do on those very rare occasions when they say that it is allowed at all. You know, all of these restrictions, they kind of kill the joy of having sex because sex feels best when it's something that's well, spontaneous. Planned sex can be good too, but definitely it feels really good when you're free to do it when you want to do it, when you're actually in the mood to do it. And sex feels great, the best kind of sex, when you are free to find a partner that you actually feel attracted to, somebody that you want to have sex with, somebody with whom you can build a mutual kind of joy through that experience. Sex is the most pleasurable when we can do it in a way that excites us doing activities that make us feel good, feel wonderful, that, that make our hearts race, okay? That bring us pleasure. Instead of following the instructions of a Christian preacher who tells us that this one way to do sex is the only right way and it doesn't matter if it feels good when you're doing it. They want you to believe that it's just about making babies. But I hope that you know that it's about a lot more than that. Now, there should always be ethical boundaries around sex. As with all kinds of human activities. But sex is a really vulnerable thing. And when you're asking somebody to become vulnerable with you, it's really important to make sure that you're not exploiting that vulnerability. So we should not hurt other people using sex. Now, there's sadism and masochism and um, submission and dominance, but w when that's entered into consensually, that's a choice. And that's not mm, suffering. It's not, I think, r really being hurt, or it's um, a choice to engage with that experimentally in order to gain a greater joy. That's a really complex kind of decision. But you know what? It's up to the people I think, who want to make that kind of decision. Because consent is really the key. Mutual consent. 
of both people or all people, if lots of people are involved, the people are getting what they want, what they agree to. And in order to have sex with consent, you have to have human beings who are capable of giving consent. And you have to believe that people have the right to make choices for themselves. Christian nationalism does not believe that. Christian nationalism views human beings as the property and creations of their sky spirit, whom they call God. Um, strange generic name. We will get to that later. But the thing is, if you're having sex with vulnerability in a way that's going to make you feel good, that's going to be pleasurable, you've got to be able to decide when to get on the ride and when to get off and what kind of ride it should be. So you've got to have people who are capable of giving consent. And for that reason, um, sex with children is really not appropriate. And I want to talk about this in terms of this um, phrase that's been brought up. Um, Christian nationalists have this uh, conspiracy theory that people being gay or lesbian or transgender is all about grooming children for sex um, somehow. And that merely telling children that there are trans people, gay people, lesbian people, bisexual intersex, all of these different kinds of identities, merely telling children that that exists is grooming them to become uh, the subject of sexual abuse. Um, no group is free from abusive people. There are problematic people in every group out there. So it would be ridiculous to say that there are no gay people, no lesbians, no trans people, no queer people who abuse children. Of course that happens because adults of all categories, there are a few people in those categories who do abuse children. However, this is really important to say. The proportion of people who sexually abuse children is highest within the group of Christian priests and preachers and pastors of various kinds. These Christian professionals, religious authorities, who use their religious authority to attack children sexually, and their organizations, the churches of Christianity, have been involved in covering up these crimes. If you want to look for where the groomers are of children, look to the Christian churches. Okay. That's not right. It's also not in line with what those same Christian priests and preachers are saying about um, what's right and wrong. And that's a really interesting kind of uh, countercurrent within Christian nationalism, that these very harsh laws, the leaders of Christian nationalism often end up disobeying them. 
the laws of Christian nationalism, these regulations, these, these rules end up being for the people at the bottom of the Christian nationalist organizations, while the people at the top feel free to do whatever it is that they want to do. And so they look at people outside of Christianity and they presume that we're going to be like those top leaders, that anyone outside of Christianity is just simply going to do whatever it is that they want to do without ethical boundaries. And that is simply not true. So when we talk about pleasure outside of Christian nationalism, we recognize that there have to be ethical boundaries. But ethical boundaries that recognize the individuality and the freedom of human beings, ethics that are built around the human experience and what people actually need, not ethics about what some invisible sky divinity um, that was written about thousands of years ago, what that character wants, okay? So consent with sex, Let's not have sex with children because they can't consent or drunk people, drugged people, coerced people. Let's leave that out. But that said, there's a lot more flexibility for ethical sex once you are able to escape Christian nationalism. There are so many more possibilities. And you don't have to do any of it that you don't want to do. You don't have to have sex at all if you're not a Christian nationalist. And you know what? A lot of people don't. It's not as if there's some great orgy going on every night uh, among the people who are non-Christian in America. That's 40% of people. There would be so many babies if that's what a non-Christian life looked like. But we can choose who to have sex with. We can choose whether we're going to have a long-term relationship or a short-term relationship. We can choose who we feel most attracted to and then act on that instead of acting on the idea of how we're supposed to feel. And we can do it in the way that we want. But there is more to pleasure than just sex, of course. It's nice to talk about sex, but let's think about other things. Let's think about work. Work. Oh, yeah, actually, there can be pleasure in work. Work doesn't just have to be about obligation and drudgery and torture. Now, <clears throat> Christian nationalists adhere to really archaic ideas about who should be allowed to do what kind of work. They want to force men and women to do specific kinds of work, keeping women at home, making babies and caring for babies, and they want to keep men outside of the home in their work, tied down with the sole responsibility that they have to carry of making enough money to support a household, which if the Christian nationalist model of marriage and of the woman's work is to be followed, there are going to be a lot of kids. And, you know, we talk a lot about the burden on women, but that's a burden on men too. In the economy, the way that it has been for not just in recent years, but you know, honestly, since the 1970s, it's been really difficult for a single wage earner to do well, to earn enough to keep a house going. And that's a real burden on men that 
drastically limits their choices in life of what they're able to do. And it puts them also in a place where they're not finding joy. For men and women alike, this is a terrible system. And if you put Christian nationalism aside, well, all kinds of things become possible. You can start thinking about your own individual inner purpose, okay? Not an extrinsic thing, not a rule about the kind of person you're supposed to be because an ancient religious text tells you that that's what you're supposed to be, or a preacher or a priest tells you what you're supposed to be. No, from the inside, you might have a sense of purpose for yourself, and that could be in alignment with what brings you pleasure, what makes you feel good about being alive. Without that, work can be torture. Christian nationalism doesn't care about your own sense of purpose. Christian nationalists believe that people don't have the right to live according to their own joy. They believe that there is this sky spirit who's already come up with a plan for every person, and that has to be enacted. That spirit never talks to anyone directly, of course. Uh, so you have to kind of guess, or very conveniently for the leaders of Christian nationalism, you have to go talk to your preacher, your pastor, the, the leaders are supposed to know, and they tell you what decisions to make with your life. Imagine what life would be like if you didn't have to obey them, if you could choose the work that you do, whether you want to be in the home or not. What kind of arrangements do you want to set up? What kind of job? And for what kind of compensation? And what do you do with that money? So, if people are allowed to live outside of Christian nationalism, they have the freedom to find work that makes them feel rewarded. And not just with the money, but with the pleasure of doing the work itself. Yes, that is a complex, challenging quest. But it is possible to do work that makes you feel good when you have the choice, when you enter into it consensually. Oh, there's a theme that's coming up. Consent. Consent. That the idea that you have a choice, that you have power, you have the right not just to say no, but to choose what to say yes to. Now, finding work that aligns with your own sense of purpose and meaning. The mission that you want for your life, that's challenging. It's not easy. Okay, so there are no guarantees. This is not um, the kind of magical thinking of Christian nationalism that so long as you obey, you pray, and somehow magical spirits will make everything all right. That's just not true. That would be an irresponsible thing to promise. But at least there is the possibility, without the restrictions of Christian nationalism, that you could find that work. You have a chance. You have an opportunity. You have the freedom to try to get something in life that might be in alignment with what you want and what you need. And of course, there are many different possibilities for that. Um, if we think about the kind of work, the kind of sex that could make you feel happy, 
maybe there isn't just one opportunity for that. Maybe there isn't just one kind of sex, one kind of work. Uh, you know, same thing. I mean, think about it with food. If you like food, do you know what? I really love pizza. I do. I don't want pizza every darn night for dinner because it becomes boring and because there are other kinds of fulfillment. So, you know, when Christian nationalists talk about their God having a plan for us, there's a poverty in that. Because if there is a plan and um, these things in your life, like sex or work or, oh, any number of things, where you live, what you do, what you read, what you think, the, the music you listen to. If there's just a single plan for that, there's not much variety. And there's not any chance for exploration. Instead, just as we might want to choose to, even though we like pizza, have different kinds of food, have fruits. Um, if you want to try meat, go for meat. If you want to have ice cream, you could have that. Okay? And you get to choose the balance of all of those different things. Well, with a life free from Christian nationalism, you can choose so many of those things because there are many different paths that you can go down. And maybe you don't even have to stick on a path. Maybe you can go off the path to go into a territory where no one has gone before. Christian nationalism seeks to control people because it comes from a religion that does not believe that there are multiple paths that are okay for you to go down. They believe that there is just one path that is good, and that is it. There is one way, and no other way is okay. And Christian nationalists believe that because they are taught that people are inherently evil, and that we are evil, wretched, awful beings from the moment we are born. It's a really weird thing if you think about what they say about being pro-life and wanting to protect these babies. They, they think that these babies are awful morally. They think that they're evil. They're born wicked. In Christian ideology, the Christian God is the definition of what is good and the only definition of what is good. And anything that deviates from the plan of the Christian God is evil. Well, you all know the story from the very start of what eventually became branched off into the Christian tradition that, um, you know, the first human beings ever Right there, the first two, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed the, the plan of God. They were there in this Garden of Eden, um, and, which is often thought of as a paradise. And here's something I want to let you know about. The idea of a paradise, that doesn't mean a wonderful place that is just perfect and so enjoyable. That is not what paradise means. Paradise means an enclosed garden. A paradise garden is a walled garden with a very strict 
kind of geometrical design. And every plant is supposed to be in its place, doing what it's supposed to do in that place and not going anywhere else. This is not a kind of cottage garden where, you know, it flows um, a little bit here and there and it's higgledy-piggledy and the plants are seeding themselves and dividing and rooting themselves as they wish. No, no, no. A paradise garden is very ge geometrical and it is all about the designer's will being executed on nature, imposing that and forcing every living being to do its job according to the script that the designer has come up with. And most importantly, a paradise garden has walls surrounding it, preventing anything that's inside from getting out, preventing anything from outside getting in. Paradise is a word etymologically that has the same root as perimeter. So you think about paradise, you think about walls that are keeping you in. A paradise is a prison. And that's where Adam and Eve were created, according to this old story. And they were supposed to act like good little plants and to be where they were supposed to be when the, 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 the creator God told them they were supposed to be there and to do what they were supposed to do and nothing else. And of course they didn't. Now, that, the whole question of why they didn't do that, I mean, if you have a, an all-powerful creator being who created these couple of beings who are capable of disobeying, that's not good design, actually. So this creator god is not really thoughtful, kind of sloppy. And then goes ahead and blames Adam and Eve, gets all angry at them for being who they are. This is what the Christian ideology is about. It's about being angry at you for being who you are and telling you that you should be something other than what you are. You should be this eternal ideal that the supposed divine creator had in mind for you, even though the divine creator screwed it up in the first place. Anyway, so Adam and Eve disobey and they became evil in that moment wicked. This is what they call original sin. And for some reason, it's passed down from generation to generation, like it's some kind of genetic disease. I mean, this, this makes no moral sense whatsoever. Like, okay, uh, if I make a mistake and I, I shoplift, and then I have a baby. My baby is not a shoplifter, I think. My baby is not guilty of shoplifting. But according to Christian ideology, yes. If you, let's say, commit arson, your baby, when you have a baby, is born an arsonist, is born guilty. Because we are sinning, we are evil, we are wicked from birth because humanity itself is about having the mere option of disobeying. So, we are all of us evil because we disobey the plan of God. And the trouble with this 
is that we don't have any other options in the Christian theological imagination. We can't go off to the neighboring God, uh, who's, are they also called God? I, okay, we're going to get into that a little later. We can't go to the neighboring divinity and say, hey, um, you know what? I was born over under this really kind of judgmental, harsh guy who likes to put everybody in a walled garden and tell them to stay put and shut up. Could we have a relationship instead? No. In the Christian imagination, there is only one God. They like to call themselves monotheists. Okay. Are they actually monotheists? Well, it doesn't start to look like that. If you look at how things work practically, there's the devil or Satan and all of those demons acting a lot like gods. Acting a lot like what gods look like in other traditions. There are all the angels as well and archangels and there's something like a demiurge, which is okay. Um, there's the Virgin Mary. Oh, and then there are these, actually, there are these gods from different traditions that, especially in the early tradition that eventually branched off and part of it became Christianity, early Judaism, there was, oh, the encounter with uh, other gods. And sometimes a talk of plural, we, the gods. Hmm. That was not edited out properly by the editors of the Bible. Uh, there were gods like Baal was a god of fertility okay and so um you know a bunch of people who were um born into the worship of this monotheist uh, jehovah god okay they went off and they were like you know what they're having a pretty good time they're doing well with this baal this is the the golden calf God, uh, this fertility God, and we want to go ahead and do that too. We want to have choices. Well, you know what happened to them? They all got uh, either brought back into the flock, into the uh, body of uh, monotheistic, obedient believers, or they got slaughtered. They got killed because they wanted to be free. So actually, if you look at Christianity and you look at the, the, the theology, it is polytheism, but it's simply polytheism in which there is this one God who is so obsessively controlling that he wants to act as if he is the only God. And all the others are um, somehow uh, wicked um, and evil, and they should not be obeyed. They should not be worshipped. But the trouble is that that same God claims to have created it all. So, I mean, this is, again, a sloppy, sloppy God. Why would you create a bunch of other options? Why would you create the God Baal um, if you didn't want people following him? Hmm. It's tricky. I mean, some Christian theologians might say, well, God wanted to give us the gift of free will. But what kind of gift is it to give people free will in a universe where the only way to not be evil is to absolutely always be obedient to the will of God? That is simply, it's like the gift of a box of matches to a five-year-old when you leave the gas on on the stove. It's a gift to die. It's not a gift. This whole thing is really sloppy. And it's sloppy, and that's important for us with Christian nationalism. 
because absolute obedience is the model of Christian nationalism, okay? And, you know, absolute obedience is not sustainable. It is not in human nature to always be able to obey authorities. I mean, first of all, it makes us feel miserable. And secondly, we just can't keep it up because authorities have to make so many rules about all the different parts of our lives it's impossible to keep up with them all and you're going to mess up and you know you're going to mess up and then you're going to be punished really harshly because part of Christian nationalism is to embody that spirit of this spirit God, creator of the Christians who is malevolent, who is judgmental, who is unforgiving. I mean, the whole idea that the way to deal with this original sin is to wait several thousand years and then have your little butting off of yourself, another part of yourself, this other little God thing, Jesus, come to earth and then sacrifice that and then wait another couple thousands of years until the end time rapture when you're going to have a whole bunch of people killed and that's the way to resolve this problem. I mean, that's not really working out. What if we had a government that worked that way? That would be Christian nationalism. I think that's not a great idea. I think we can do better. So the idea of being free of Christian nationalism is this idea that there can be more than one way to lead a good life. It's not to be monotheistic. I mean, you don't have to be theistic about it at all. You could be theistic if you wanted to. So let's talk about that. Okay. In Christian nationalism and Christianity in general, I have to say there is this idea that Christianity is the center of everything. The, 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 the main question of life that you have to deal with. And so you see this even in the way that people who do polls on religion in America. They they start out with this question, do you believe in God? Okay. And God is capitalized. And when God is capitalized, that means the Christian God. But you know what? There is more than just the Christian God. The pollsters don't lead with that. They don't lead with the diversity because these pollsters on religion in American society, they start by accepting the Christian frame, which is that either you believe in the Christian God or you don't. And actually, life is more complex than that. Let's think about this in terms of food. <clears throat> Are you an oatmealist? Do you eat oatmeal or not? Well, okay, yes, either you eat oatmeal or you don't, but that is not the way to ask about a person's diet. You ask, what do you do? Because there are many things in your pantry, in your refrigerator, in your freezer, at the store, at the restaurant. So many different things that we can eat. And, you know, one of the wonderful things is that... Um, we haven't even discovered all of the things that we can eat. Do you know that? I mean, the number of plants, for example, that are domesticated or harvested in the wild, compared to the number of things that we could be eating, oh my gosh, the difference is amazing. There are lots of wild plants out there that we could be eating, but that mostly people aren't. 
Well, simply because choice is kind of difficult to deal with when you have so many options. But we do. And we have options that we haven't even explored, haven't even discovered yet. Well, if you want to talk about being religious, being religious is one choice, not being religious is another. If you want to talk about believing in gods, well, that's one choice. There are ways to be religious that don't involve believing in gods. There are religious people who don't. There are Buddhists, for example, who don't believe in any divinities. That's not how they practice. Now, there are some forms of Buddhism in which they do believe in divine beings of one form or another. And for some Buddhists, that's literal. And for some, that's a metaphor. But for some, they don't even exist at all. Let's take a look for a moment at the relatively small corner of life that is religious and does believe in gods. Gods, plural. Do you know how many different uh, gods that there are out there? Okay, lots of them. Thousands of them. And actually, there have been more gods that people believe in than we will ever be able to know about. So let's even start to think about, ooh, where does this name God come from? It doesn't come from the Bible, does it? No, uh, it doesn't even come from that part of the world. It comes from Northern Europe. Because God is not the Christian God. Not originally. Okay, you have heard of in Norse mythology, which stretched kind of um, through Scandinavia, Germany, probably parts of Poland, over to Britain, places like that, right? Well, Odin, the father uh, of the gods, but not the father of all of them, actually. Uh, but of Thor, definitely the father of Thor. Odin, one-eyed god, war god, a trickster god, kind of a god of magic in some ways. And also a god of foresight. He has one eye. And so that name Odin was also pronounced in some places Woden or Wotan. And then in some places became pronounced Godan. Are you starting to see where this goes? That became pronounced in some parts of all of the places that um, worshipped this divinity. Odin, it became pronounced God or God. Okay, that is where the word God comes from. It's a name of a specific God that has nothing to do with Christianity. It's an alternate form of the name Odin. When you say God, you are talking about Odin. <clears throat> of course, we know that you actually aren't. But the name of the Norse god Odin, if you are not reading the Bible in Greek or Aramaic or Latin is probably going to be the name of that Norse god. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, okay, so do you believe in God? Well, do you believe in Odin? No. Okay, well, well what God do you believe in? Oh, you believe in the God of Christianity. Hmm. The God of Christianity is just one choice. 
I remember this, this bothered me when I was um, a young man. In the courses uh, at the university that I went to, it was taught that there is this hierarchy of religion, that religion evolved in a very linear way. And it started out with pantheism, which is the idea that a sacred essence is within all things, even rocks, water, trees, um, clouds. And then that that evolved into polytheism, the idea that there are many different gods. And then that reached its pinnacle with monotheism. And so monotheism is the most evolved, most developed form of religion out there. Um, but that's not actually what happened in the world, because not all roads lead to monotheism. You know, in, in ancient Egypt, for example, there was one pharaoh who got the idea of monotheism into his head, probably because he wanted to have a lot more power and liked the idea of a single god that could have all the power. Representing the power of the monarch, there is a definite linkage between monarchy and monotheism. But you know what? Um, the people of Egypt thought that was a terrible idea, and they rebelled against him, and they uh, reinstated the polytheistic ancient Egyptian system. Um, monotheism did not stick there. In Hinduism, monotheism is not the idea that stuck. Um, there's this funny thing that goes on in, in, in Hinduism, excuse me, where um, there are all of these competing uh, kinds of visions of what Hinduism should be. Hinduism is not a single thing, actually. There are devotees of one god who say, well, our god in Hinduism here, that is the big god, that is the main god, and your other gods are underneath that god. And, um, and then um, members of other sects of Hinduism say exactly the opposite. They say, no, it's ours who is in charge of everything, and your God is just a part of our God. And by the way, they don't say God. They have their own Hindu word for that, which is not related to Odin, uh, the one-eyed guy who rides an eight-legged horse up in the sky, father of Thor. Although the two are more related than you might think, because uh, Indo-European people came from someplace in Central Asia. And so Hinduism is derived from that as well as Norse mythology. They're related, but it's not the same thing. Norse mythology and Hinduism. Because they're different choices. And you have different choices of who to align with in each. So you have Ganesh, or you have Agni, the god of fire. Uh, you can think about Brahma. You can think about Shiva. You can think about Kali. So many choices. I mean, and there's a lot more than that within Hinduism. Uh, there's, there's Pushan, who is this kind of psychopomp who is responsible for marriages and roads and the feeding of cattle. <coughs> wow. Kind of interesting, uh, kind of like Hermes, in a sense, over with the Greeks. Um, but um, maybe kind of different as well, because different people had different ideas. 
And monotheism is just one of those ideas. And as we've seen, even the, the Christian monotheists who are very strict about there being just one God, actually there's more than one God in Christianity. I mean, there's the Trinity, you know, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. They can't even keep that together. And then they've got the Virgin Mary and all of the saints. I mean, who are most of them, those saints, were never actually people uh, who had magical powers. And what is that about if you're not a god? Um, anyway, but like St. Bridget, it, that was an Irish, native Irish goddess, um, not an actual woman. So we have all of these many options within religion. But then the Christian nationalists and Christianity in general, they want to reduce it to just one choice. Do you believe in God or not? Which God? And even when, for those people who choose not to have religion, um, when they do that and they want to identify themselves, sometimes it's really hard to escape this frame because it's a totalitarian frame. It wants to encompass everything, to be about everything, to control everything, to set even the terms of the debate. So there's this whole idea of people calling themselves atheists, and that's who they are. But that, and if that's what you want to choose, then you can choose that. But even that is accepting the controlling Christian frame by defining yourself according to not believing in gods. Think about this. There are even options about believing in other things besides gods. You might believe in other supernatural things. You might not believe in any supernatural things at all. You know, and I live in the United States of America, but I don't think of myself primarily as a not-Canadian, as an a-Canadian. Um, I'm not primarily not Canadian. There are lots of places in the United States where that is the country that I live. And a Texan is not the same as a New Yorker or a Californian or somebody from New Jersey or Florida or Puerto Rico or the Northern Marianas Islands, which are part of the United States in a kind of strange, very colonial sort of way. We have those kinds of choices as well. We don't just have to be Christian or nothing. <clears throat> There's more that we can do. We can have different kinds of philosophies, of ideas uh, of what to do in our lives. And, you know, philosophy isn't just this academic stuffy thing where a bunch of sniffy people talk about, well, Derrida said this on that page of this, and I believe that therefore I can create a very mm, orderly sort of argument about the relevance of that in relationship to the development of the internal combustion engine. Yes, that's, okay, that's sort of the practice of academic philosophy, which, you know, for some reason doesn't get a lot of play out there in the <laughs> outside world. No, but actual philosophy is much richer and much broader than that. And I did a caricature of academic philosophers. Not all of them are that way, although some of them are. 
philosophy can actually be an enjoyable exploration, an earnest way to ask questions and consider many different answers out there. It doesn't have to be cold and stiff. It doesn't have to be about pure logic either. Because many times philosophical questions, the really deep ones, they can't be considered through pure logic. They can be considered from multiple angles, depending on how you define your terms and the perspective that you're coming from. Each one of those is valid from their own perspective. Without you having to choose to be one or the other, you do not have to just choose one thing. You don't have to be a monotheist. And so being free from Christian nationalism, what does that look like practically? Well, ultimately what it means is that you get to have autonomy. You get to make decisions about the way that you lead your life. You get to learn about multiple things. You don't just sit in a classroom where they teach you that Christianity is the only way to be an American and withhold from you all the other possibilities. I mean, that's what the Christian nationalists want. So those of us who oppose Christian nationalism, we want to have an educational system where people learn about all kinds of different ways to be a human being. And we want to frame the American identity as something where we have the choice of how we are going to come together as a society and the choice of how we're going to live as individuals. And, you know, that choice is not going to be absolute. Freedom is not unlimited, but we do have that freedom. And we can exercise those freedoms without being punished for it. If you have Christian nationalism, you start to have things like blasphemy laws, saying that you are not allowed to use the name of the Lord God in vain, never minding that the Lord God is Odin, the Viking God, and not the Christian God. So <clears throat> I want to offer up, as I do uh, at the end of every episode, something that you can do to begin to explore this. And this is um, one specific action that I think can be helpful to you in exploring some of the possibilities of what exists out there, outside of Christian nationalism. The kinds of things we can do, the, the lovely possibilities that are available to us. And that is, I want you to decapitalize the Christian God. Uh, I mentioned this a couple times, kind of hinted at it. This idea of the, the word God. I think is one that we have to overcome. Um, for one thing, there's a really colonialist use of it. Uh, and there's a lot of this that's done with Christianity in general. The idea that um, uh, you might ask Hindus, for example, what is the Hindu Bible? Well, the Hindu Bible is not the Bible. Uh, the, I mean, the, what does the word Bible mean anyway? It means book. That's what it means. So you capitalize the word Bible. It's like you're pretending that there is only one book that matters, which is kind of like what Christian nationalists want us to do with the word God. They capitalize it and then it becomes 
really by default the Christian God. Culturally, that's how we think of it. And so the people will go and they'll say, well, okay, you have this religion somewhere else, but what is the Native American view of God? Well, you know, in a strictly Native American sense, before Europeans came over, they didn't have a sense of God. They didn't have a sense of uh, Odin, the sky god, who was the that's the original god, or the Christian god, um, with the capital G. It's, it's just not in there. It's it's like saying, you know, um, what is the um, Connecticut version of living in Arizona? I mean, these are totally separate things. So decapitalizing the Christian God. It achieves this. It recognizes that the word God, if you decapitalize it, refers to just this kind of being, which is a supernatural being with lots of power. And there are lots of those. I mean, we even have those in our culture. We have Spider-Man. It's kind of like a God. Uh, Doctor Strange, or if you want to go over to the DC universe, where that's a different pantheon, well, you have Superman, um, Batman. So, <clears throat> capital God, capitalized God, is presumed to be the Christian God. And when you capitalize that word God, you are going along with the Christian nationalist idea that Everybody has to start with Christianity as their way of defining the world. And you have to start with Christianity even if you want to reject it. And you have to declare yourself to be an atheist and stand against it even in order to exist, in order to make sense. So you'll notice in this podcast that I've done something different. And this is an audio form. But if you go to the Christian uh, the Stop Christian Nationalism website at stopchristiannationalism.com, you'll notice that I do the same thing in the text. I do not capitalize the word God. And I don't just say God. Because to do so accepts the Christian frame and ultimately the kind of Christianity that leads inevitably to Christian nationalism as a logical outcome of monotheism. Uh, if you have a monotheism where you have to obey God and um, there's only one of them, well, it goes straight to it. Instead, you can use the decapitalized version of the word and put it into cultural context. So you can talk about Greek gods, but with a, a lowercase g. You could talk about the Christian God with a lowercase g, which is what I do in this podcast. If you go back through the eight previous episodes, you'll notice that. I do that because I don't want to start uh, to speak about Christian nationalism while accepting its terms. There is not a single normal way of being human that is Christian, that believes in the Christian God and capitalizes that. I mean... Imagine you did this with your dog. There are lots of dogs out there. The fortunate ones have good owners and they have all kinds of different names. That's a kind of respectful thing to do, right? Let's say I call mine George. I capitalize that, George. But what if you were a really uncreative 
um, dog owner. You might name your dog Dog, and then you would capitalize that. That is what the Christians have done. And imagine if then dog owners all started assuming that, um, you know, whenever you're talking about a dog, you're really talking about that guy's dog. And, you, you know, that's what a dog is. It's that guy's dog who happens to be a pug. And I'm sorry out there for people who really like pugs. You know, pugs mean well, I'm sure. But gosh darn it, why do you breed those things? They can't breathe through their mouths. They have these sicknesses. Their teeth are terrible because they're their mouths are all misshapen. It's a miserable thing to be a pug. Well, that guy has a pug for a dog and capitalizes and calls it dog and then wants everybody else to presume that that is the model of what a dog is. I'm sorry, that's not the model of a dog. There are lots of ways to be a dog and a number of them are not overbred and so formalized into these ideas of what a dog should look like, you know, very uptight ideas that are not good for dogs and not good, I think, for the owners who have to take care of them. So let's not do that with this idea of gods and religions. And hey, let's not do that with the Bible either. Let's talk about that as the Bible, because Bible is a word that means book. And you know what? There are lots of books and I'm sorry to tell you this, but um, the Christian Bible is not the greatest story ever told. It's kind of incoherent. It's clearly written by committee um, over a long period of time. It has some really awful character development, and um, it, it's, it's problematic. There are a lot of other books that are fantastic. So this is what I'm asking you to do. Take action. Decapitalize words like God and Bible. And doing that is a way to remind yourself and to signal to others that you refuse to take that Christian nationalist frame of mind as a default, that you refuse to live within the walled garden paradise that has been dictated to you, that you are going to move where you want to move and you're going to live the way that you want to live. So thank you for listening to me explore all these different possibilities that you have. I mean, we didn't even really get into all of them, did we? I mean, it could be that you quit your job and you go off and become a professional writer. Or, you know, a man might decide that he wants to be in a marriage where he's the one who stays at home and takes care of the kids while his wife works. You could decide to be in a same-sex relationship. There are so many possibilities out there once you get free from Christian nationalism. But the Christian nationalists are trying to shut all that down. And that is what it comes down to. It comes down to the fact that Yes, 60% of America is Christian. Not all of those people are Christian nationalists. Maybe about 60% of the Christians in America are Christian nationalists to some extent. And they are trying to shut down our freedoms. And they're doing it desperately because America is becoming more diverse. Religiously, ethnically, culturally than it ever has been before. And that terrifies them. That's the thing. Diversity is to them a sin. It is disobedience of God. 
But to us human beings, that's what makes life worth living, ultimately. For those of us who do not believe in Christian nationalism. And so what are we working for? We're not working to prohibit Christian nationalism. We are working to make Christian nationalism one option among many other options. And the way that we do that is we keep the United States as a secular democracy. And secular democracy does not mean that there is some ideology called secularism that we force everyone to learn and obey. That's the monotheist way of doing it. No, secularism is the idea that you simply have an absence of religious ideologies in government. You just kind of put that aside and you don't use government to force any religion or religion even as a general category on anyone. You keep it separate. That's what secularism means. And keeping America a secular democracy means that people will keep the right to be Christian nationalists if that's what they want to be. To be Christian in some other way, if that's what they want to be. To be a member of one of the many other religions, if that's what they want to be. Or to follow their own religious pathway, if that's what they want. Or to not be religious at all, if that's what they want. And then not being religious, well, what way do you want to do that? Each pathway forks. It brings us to more and more possibilities. Just as with in a sexual relationship. You have a relationship with this other person. And you understand that in general you kind of like certain things sexually. But it doesn't mean that every time you have sex it's the same way. Every time is different. And there are all kinds of things out there to explore. Fighting Christian nationalism. Nonviolently. Having a struggle against it means that we keep those possibilities open. We don't close them off. And so there is, by definition, a lot of ground to cover with that. And so we're going to keep on coming with this podcast, Stop Christian Nationalism. And next week, I will go back to the ordinary format where I'm citing some of the really unfortunate things that Christian nationalists are doing and explaining why that's a problem and explaining what we can do about it. So um, I hope that you come back next week. Thank you for listening this week. And uh, I hope you have a great time out there. I hope that you find some fantastic consensual joy. Come back next week because we have a lot to talk about.